The revelation of Jesus Christ, as we've seen, is a book, a letter, for the church. Now that might seem fairly obvious. We read all of the scriptures and we say that this, these are writings from God to the church. But there are views on multiple books of the Bible that would place them outside of that category. And, when, and some of us have come from backgrounds or have at least known people from different backgrounds who would point to various books in our table of content and, and contents and say, well, those are there, but those are not really for us. We, we've heard that. And not just the Revelation. When it comes to the Revelation, those same folks usually wouldn't say that, but they will come up with an interpretation of the Revelation that essentially says, that's not for us. That was for them back in the past, or that was, was written in the past, but up until now and maybe even not quite yet, it's still not actually relevant to the church, but maybe sometime in the future it'll become relevant. And so right now we're just sort of trying to wrap our minds around what it means. We would say the revelation of Jesus Christ is for the church. From the time that it was written until now, until the time that Christ returns, it is specifically applicable, specifically relevant, as, as I've said, the, the close of the canon, if you will. Now, taking that into account, I want to go through a brief survey of what we've seen with regard to the church so far, beginning in chapter 1, where John said in verse 9, as he wrote, I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation. John was in the tribulation. Those to whom he wrote were in the tribulation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. We see there that he had been exiled to the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Everything in that sentence would lead us to believe that because he was being faithful to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, he had been placed or put on the island of Patmos removed from his post in the church there and secluded. That, that was his experience. In chapter 2, verses 6, writing to the church at Ephesus, and then in verse 15, writing to the church at Pergamum, we have this reference to the Nicolaitans. Their teaching, it seemed to be something to the effect of, it's okay to join in the idolatrous pagan festivals of your culture if that's what you have to do to get along, if, if that's what it requires to put food on the table, well, you've got to put food on the table, so it's okay to join in those things. The pagan feasts, the, the, the idolatry, the eating of the foods, and even the sexual immorality that, in, that was involved there. In verse 9 of chapter 2, we looked at the church at Smyrna. They were in the tribulation. They were suffering from the slander of Jewish people. Remember, the idea was that the Jews at that time wanted to make it very clear to Rome, those Christians and us, we're not the same. We are different and actually began to slander the Christians and uh, say things that weren't true so that Rome would focus their attention on the Christians rather than on the Jewish community. The Jewish community was, was loved and, and adored. The Christians were not. Ethnic Jews. In chapter 2, verse 10, we saw the devil was going to throw some of those saints into prison and they would die. They would be killed. In chapter 2, verse 13, we hear of a man named Antipas who was killed 
He's referred to as my faithful witness. It seems to imply because he was a faithful witness, he was killed. In verse 14, we have a reference to the teaching of Balaam. Again, another, another uh, idea that said it's okay to involve yourself in the sexual immorality and the, the cult prostitution of those pagan temples. You can do that because that's really what you got to do to get along in the society. If you don't do that, you're going to be ostracized. So it's okay in those circumstances. Balaam put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 20, we meet Jezebel who was teaching something very similar, advertised in this form of Gnosticism. She had a special teaching, the, the hidden things. And the hidden things were this. Same thing. It's okay. God doesn't mind if you give yourself to that idolatry. He knows you, you're the circumstances and you can, you can involve yourself in that. That's what you have to do to, to get along. That's how you survive. In other words, we've seen that the experience of the church in that first century was full of already false teaching, uh, pagan idolatry, and even tyranny from their society and from their, their governments, and, and even in some instances, physical persecution. And what we're seeing now is that those were actually the attacks of Satan from without the church and from within the church. Now, a cursory reading of the New Testament would show us that those things have been present in the church from the earliest days of the apostles. A beginner's survey of church history would prove that these things have been present in the church from that point all the way down through the centuries to the present day in some form or another. Some places are more severe. Some periods of time are more severe. And the question that we've been asking in Revelation chapter 12 is why? Why is there this hatred? Why are people so offended? Why can't they just ignore us? Why can't they just let us do our thing? Well, what we're seeing is there is actually a war behind the war. That ancient serpent who deceived Eve in the garden has from that point mounted an attack against the Messiah who was to be her promised offspring. Now, last week we, we opened the door. Hopefully you remember the analogy of the doors. We, we opened that door that was labeled death, resurrection, and ascension, and then in parentheses, heaven view. We kind of saw what was taking place in those acts. As the promised Messiah comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, He's not stopped. The serpent wanted to devour Him, but he failed. He's not stopped. He accomplishes his work which rendered the serpent powerless in his accusation against the saints of God. Why? Because atonement had been made. The sacrifice, the only sacrifice that, was, that could to, to satisfy the wrath of God and reconcile sinners to God was made in the death of Christ. When Christ ascends to power, any accusations the serpent might have are powerless. They, they go nowhere. In the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, God has been vindicated. We learned that in Romans. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. God is vindicated. Even to this day, if you believe on Christ and are justified through that faith, God is justifying the ungodly. And that's okay. God is just in justifying the ungodly because of what Christ has done. At the same time, the saints have been vindicated so that now we can come freely and boldly to the throne of the Most High God 
everlasting righteousness has been brought in in human form and now stands in the person of Christ at the right hand of the Father so that we can go into the presence of God. The Lamb has overcome by His blood. And we in Him also share in that overcoming. He loved not His life even unto death and therefore He can give us grace to exercise that same denial, to love not our lives even unto death. He has conquered. His victory is our victory. That was last week. All of that was behind that door. Death, resurrection, and ascension. Heaven view. That's what happened when Christ finished His work. Now we're going to close that door. We're going to come back out into the main foyer. And we're going to enter into another door. This is door number four from last week's illustration or analogy. And the title, the, the, the label on this door is The Woman... Safe in the wilderness. In verse 6, we saw this addressed just very briefly. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Remember that the woman prior to Christ was the direct spiritual lineage of Christ Himself, insulated by a physical line because He was born a man, Fully God, fully man, that lineage brought Christ into the world. And after that lineage found that culmination in the one seed of Abraham, from that point, the physical line is no longer necessary and the line continues in the spiritual seed, the spiritual, uh, the line of the godly. So we, we can say the woman is the church in its most idealized form. And I, I can, I'll explain some of that language A little bit later. The church in its most idealized form. And the revelation is written for the church. It's written for that woman. The woman, the church, is a militant church and yet she's a suffering church. The woman, as we gather in an expression here, we might begin to wonder, sort of like John the Baptist... If all that's true in verses 7 through 12, if the Messiah has really come, if He has really conquered, then why are we still suffering? We understand it prior to His coming. The text said He came, that that the serpent was thrown down. Our experience is very similar. The experience of the church hasn't really gotten any better for the last 2,000 years. We saw last week in verse 12 that He's come down in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. His previous abilities to accuse the brethren have been severed. And so now he lights upon a new scheme with even more hatred and vehemence than he had before. In other words, the question is not, why are are these things happening if Christ has conquered? The answer to that is these things are happening because Christ has conquered. Because He has come down in great wrath. And that's what we're going to see. When we look behind this fourth door, we get some more details as to why the church in the present time is experiencing the things that she's experiencing. Specifically because the dragon has been cast down. Now we get to see what his schemes are. We we need to be familiar with what his, his plan of attack is. And so the outline, I've got five points. And this outline is more poetic than it is linear. I'll just list the points. Pursuit, protection, attack, protection, pursuit. Now, 
Unless you're a poet, you'd say, what does that have to do with poetry? Well, it, there's, there's a form here. And when you see a structure like this, that sort of, what we would call this an A, B, C, B, A structure, C is the main point. It's in the middle. It's the main point. It's the main idea. So here in this section, attack is the main idea. Pursuit, protection, attack, protection, pursuit. Now why do I think attack is the main idea? Because after chapter 12, everything else is about the attack. It's going to begin to open up this idea of the attack. But here we're just introduced to the idea of attack. But again, that is surrounded by pursuit and protection. So keep that in mind as we look at the first point. The first thing we see here in verse 13 is pursuit. We know the dragon waited to devour the Christ. We know that he not only failed to devour the Christ, but was thrown down by the work of Christ. We know that he's come down in great wrath. Verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Notice the setting or the the, the general context. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down. We know that this follows what is recorded in verses 7 to 9. In other words, following the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the dragon sees, comes to the realization that he's been thrown down. Remember, the picture is not meant to convey a literal changing of physical locations. It's a change of his power or his ability to accuse the saints. In other words, when the dragon realized that his efforts to accuse the saints no longer have any power, when the devil realized his old ways are no longer useful, when he saw that, that's the setting, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Again, following after the ministry of Christ. Prior to the coming of Christ, in verse 4, we see the dragon, as it were, waiting for the child to be born. He wants to devour then the child is born and is taken up to God. At this point, now that Christ has come, He's won the victory, He's ascended to His throne, any notion of stopping the child, that's gone. He, he missed that. He failed. So what does the dragon do? He goes after the woman. He pursues the spiritual line. Now that word pursues, some of you have persecutes, and that's, that's a, 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 fine, a fine translation. If we had the word persecute, I would tell you that the idea behind this word is is to to chase after in order to harm. Now that we have the word in the ESV, to pursue, I'll tell you the idea is to chase after in order to harm. It's the same idea. It's, It's being on the offensive, coming after somebody, tracking them down to hurt them. We know, of course, that the present manifestation of the woman is the church. The body of Christ filled with the Spirit of Christ. The church, the body of Christ filled with the Spirit of Christ is the ministry of Christ on the earth at the present time. And so it makes perfect sense to come after the church. Christ's body filled with Christ's Spirit carrying out Christ's work. If I can't get the child, then I'll get that mystical body of the child, the church. I'll go after the woman. Now what does this tell us about the present age? until Christ returns, should we expect that as history moves towards an end, that the experience of the church is going to become 
easier in the world? I think the answer from here and elsewhere is no. We've already seen that in chapter 11, we should expect a trampling as the church. Here we're seeing the devil has come down with with more cruel and more bitter hatred than ever. He's pursuing the woman. That's the first point. But secondly, in verse 14, we see protection. Protection. This this again, we've seen many times in chapter 2. Those in Smyrna, you will be put to death, but be faithful and I'll give you the crown of life. In chapter 11, you are measured and protected, but you have also been handed over to be trampled. You're marked off, you're kept by God, but you have been handed over. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep will ensure our safe arrival into His arms, but that does not mean that suffering and persecution won't come. It doesn't mean that we are kept from the attacks of Satan. It means that we are kept through the attacks of Satan. Romans 8, in all these things, or or through all of these things, we are more than conquerors. You're not a conqueror if you don't conquer something. Right? You have to go through something, come out the other side, then you can say I conquered. If you walk around the outside of it and just get to the finish line, you didn't conquer anything. It's in these things that we're conquerors. Here we see the exact same thing. Verse 14, The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Protection. There will be persecution or there will be a pursuit, but there's also protection. We saw back in chapter 11 how the ministries of Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses, were illustrative of the ministry of the church. The two witnesses are the church. Here we see the exact same imagery again. Moses and Elijah as witnesses, as messengers of God, are pictures of the the church. This idea of being born on wings to safety... This goes back to the exodus from Egypt. God, speaking to Moses to give a message to the people, says in Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now this is going to become incredibly important here. God, think about the exodus, God executes judgments on their captors. What was the climax of that? The dead lamb with the blood on the door. He executes judgments. Then God, as it were, meets them at the exit door of Egypt in a pillar of fire, meets them there, and immediately begins to lead them to bring them to Himself. And the way that that is described as being born on the wings of an eagle, swiftly taken up to a place that is safe and out of reach from harm. Where did God bring the Israelites? Verses 1 through 3 of Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped, and this is important too, before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Judgment is executed on the captors. They are 
climaxing in the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. They are brought out. God meets them, brings them to the mountain to themselves or to Himself into the place that He refers to as the wilderness. Now, we, while we typically think of the wilderness in regards to Israel, we only think of the wilderness wanderings which were a, a judgment, a punishment on their, their disobedience, their unbelief. But here we see they were in the wilderness before that happened. The wilderness was the place through which God brought His people in order to get them to Himself. It was Sinai first, then the land of Canaan. During the wilderness time, God manifested His presence with His people in very special ways to let them know that He's there to care for them and to protect them. Right outside of Egypt, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Then he build, they build the tabernacle where the, the glory of the Lord comes and the, the pillar rests upon the tabernacle. Again, reminding them, God is with us. We're not where we're going. We're not at our, our final destination yet. But wherever we are, God is there. That's the picture of the wilderness. It's not necessarily a place of punishment. It's simply the place of God's promised presence with His people while they sojourn to their final destination. So come back to Revelation 12. The woman is given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. Again, put the story together going back to verse 7. Judgment upon the dragon has been executed. Climaxing in what? The death of the lamb. But like Pharaoh, the devil did not take no for an answer. He did not back down quietly. But he pursues... And at the same time, God gives His special presence, His Spirit, to guide His people to Himself. To be born up on the wings of an eagle in the wilderness simply implies being swiftly taken to a place that is out of reach. But this place is a place of sojourning. It's not the final destination. This place is a place of God's promised presence throughout the journey. For us... This place is not a place at all. What's being described here in the language of the wilderness is the spiritual state of the church at the present time under the protection of God by the Spirit of Christ. We're not where we're going. We're not at the final destination yet. But wherever we are, we know we have God's promised presence. This is the God calling us to Himself to then bring us to where He will have us in eternity. Now, extending beyond that protection, there's nourishment. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The present state of the church is, is a state of nourishment. We'll go back to Moses and Israel and that ministry there. They were in the wilderness. They were nourished by what? Manna. Bread from heaven. What did Christ say? I, my Father, gives the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread. Nourishment for the people of God. They were fed even in the wilderness. We, we at this point, can begin to see the lines blur with the ministry of Elijah during that famine. He's taken off into a place prepared by God for three and a half years during a famine, and he is nourished. While the whole known world was suffering... The messenger of God is kept safe. He's protected. The the ravens are bringing him food. The word nourished here doesn't mean to to be fed with meager rations. 
The idea is not, I'll wait till you're emaciated and almost dead, and then I'll sprinkle a little bit of food just to, just to barely get you through. It's not what this word means. The word nourish means to be fed and brought to health or strengthened. A similar a form of this word is used in Ephesians 6.4 when Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. That phrase, bring them up, it's a form of the same word. The idea is you get them when they're babies. It's your job to take them from a baby and bring them to maturity by nourishment. Hopefully you see the image. The church has been swiftly taken into the care of God, into the place that He has prepared for her. The place is not the final destination, but it is a place of nourishment, of growth. The place where she's brought to maturity and beauty. She's made to be what she is going to be until finally Christ returns and takes her to Himself. And isn't this exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 5? No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. It just as Christ does the church. It's another form of the same word. This is what He's doing. What's the goal? That He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, the, the purpose of this nourishment is sanctification, bringing the bride to beauty. God is the one who beautifies His bride and makes her lovely. Now think about the irony of this. The church is taken into the wilderness. And when we think of a wilderness, we don't typically think of a place of nourishment, of being beautified and fed and, and, and strengthened. But for the church, who is the body of Christ, whose glory is displayed in His sufferings and death, whose victory was won in His death, See that irony? Wouldn't it make perfect sense that the church is actually strengthened and nourished and brought to maturity in the very place where no one would expect her to be strengthened and beautified and sanctified? Why? Because God is there. The wilderness, it's not about the, the, the wilderness itself. It's about the fact that that's where God brings the people to Himself for that purpose. To, to, to beautify the bride. And, and this is to happen, it says, for a time and times, and half a time. Now back in verse 6, it said that the woman has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now it's a time, times, and half a time. Well, that 1,260 days takes us back to chapter 11, the, the, the length of the period of the prophesying of the two witnesses. Again, the church which was also 42 months, the time that the holy city would be trampled, which is exactly three and a half years. Now if we take that picture, three and a half, one year, a time, two years, times, and then half a time, half of a year. It's the same, it, the same time period. So here we just see it put forth in another form, time, times, Half a time, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. It's all a reference to the entirety of the church age. These are not literal numbers. The time that Elijah was nourished during the famine. The time Christ ministered on the earth. Three and a half years. It's interesting that the church age is considered as our wilderness sojourning 
and that the maturation of the church is happening. And, and notice how all of this follows on the heels of the victory of Christ. And this is what I, what I think is, is really my favorite point to be made here. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. We've looked at these before. Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Same, the language of Revelation 12. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What did John say? He said this to speak of the way that he was going to be put to death. His crucifixion. When, I, when they nail my hands and my feet to that cross and lift it up and I'm hanging there between heaven and earth, the dragon is cast out, thrown down, he's defeated, and from that point I will draw all people to myself. Now in that text there's a reference to the judgment, the casting out of Satan... The reference is the cross and a reference to drawing all people. In connection with the death of Christ and the casting out of Satan, he says the gospel is going to go forth to all nations, to all types and kinds of people. Why? Because I'm winning. That's what he's saying. This is how I win. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The authority was given to Christ on the accomplishment of His work. He receives that authority and He says, Therefore, in other words, because I have won the victory, because I am the King, go and make disciples. But the point is not just make disciples, it's make disciples of all the nations. Disciple the nations. Christ has ascended to mediatorial power And to use the language of Matthew 12, the nations are now free for the plundering. He's saying, go. Nothing can stop you now. Run forth. Satan's been thrown down. He's bound. He can't stop you. Go forth. Luke 24, 46 to 49. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We have there Christ's sufferings and death and resurrection, the preaching of the gospel of all nations, and then He goes on and says, Behold, I'm, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of My Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I bring that up is that these are not symbolic, vague texts. You know, I'm not going to pretend like the book of the Revelation is just super easy. But in John 12 and Matthew 28 and Luke 24, I don't scratch my head saying, what's the symbol? What does it mean? Very clear, straightforward narrative passages. The Bible has taught from the beginning to the end that when the Christ comes and suffers and dies, at that point, the gospel is going to go forward into the nations. And people are going to be gathered. The gospel goes forth effectually because He has all authority. And what happens as the gospel goes forth in power among the nations? The church is built. The church is brought to maturity. The woman is nourished in the very place prepared for her by God for the entirety of the church age. So we see here this gospel conquest, gospel plundering. This is why we ought to be utterly optimistic. We're in the time. We're in the, we're in the time. The three and a half years. The time, the times, and half a time. We're there. Go forward. That's the idea here. This is the time of the church's beautification. 
But then we see point number three, the attack. And remember, this is the main idea that's being put forward. It addresses the context of chapters 12 all the way to 22. It addresses the context of the original audience. It addresses us who are living proof that the gospel is going forward to the nations, because that's us, we're the nations. So we know all this is happening, and we could ask, well, does any of this cause the dragon to back down? He tried with the woman, that didn't work. Or he tried with the, the, the offspring, and that didn't work, so he comes after the woman. He's been thrown down. Doesn't he just stop? No, he doesn't. His, his plan of attack is merely altered. Verse 15 says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now, I wonder if you noticed... In verse 14, we made a transition from speaking of the devil as the dragon to speaking of the devil as the serpent. And that verse actually ends in, in the original. It ends with that reference to the serpent. Verse 14. Verse 15 picks that up and carries it all the way through the verse and then drops it in verse 16 to where we're back to talking about the dragon again. Now, most people would just read that and say, yeah, we get it, we know who we're talking about. But you have dragon... Then you have serpent, and then you go back to dragon. What's the difference in these references to the, between the dragon and the serpent? Well, the serpent points us back to Genesis chapter 3, that ancient serpent. And what was the overwhelming character trait of the serpent in the garden? The serpent was more crafty than any other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's, he's cunning, he's sneaky, he's deceptive. So what's the devil's primary attack at the present time? in pointing specifically to him as the serpent, lies, deception, distortion of the truth. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the fear. What does every New Testament epistle deal with at some level? The introduction of either blatant false teaching or some subtle distortion of the truth. Every one of them. Because the serpent knows that if he can convolute the truth or if he can introduce some subtle alteration to sound doctrine in one generation, in two generations or less, he can completely derail those people. And we've seen it happen generation after generation after generation when sound doctrine is not held in high regard and clutched and protected by the people of God. Whenever, as, as Kyle said, whenever we begin to, to, to see the blessings of God and then we get lazy and we begin to assume, that's when we're in trouble. Listen to Romans 16, verses 17 to 20. I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Four, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These are not just a bunch of disjointed statements closing a letter. The saints 
are expected to be a means of crushing Satan in an application of what Christ has already accomplished. And we will need the grace of Christ to do it. In this text, to make the right judgment between good and evil. This text could be written to, to describe Genesis 3. The serpent, with smooth talk and flattery, deceived the heart of the naive when they ought to have been wise as to what was good and innocent to what is evil. It's the same thing. It's continued down to this very day. Now we say, hold a second, I thought that the head of the serpent was crushed by Christ. And the answer is he was. Formally, and now the body of Christ carries on that same work through the grace of the Lord Jesus who has conquered the devil himself. Paul writing to Rome, he says, listen, people are coming in. And you've got to continue the work. It's almost like he had some insight. Something very specific is about to come into the Roman church. And so he, he pronounces this blessing upon them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You're going to need it. Without that grace, you will not win. It will deceive you. It will overtake you. Now wouldn't we expect that since the church continues to execute in some form that same judgment of Christ and discerning good from evil in a sense crushing Satan, that Satan would still to this day nip at the heels of the church, who is the body of Christ, through deceptive attacks, through smooth talk, through flattery. That's what he does. Notice verse 15 of Revelation 12. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Throughout the Revelation, remember when you see something coming from the mouth, just like in the Proverbs, the mouth, the tongue, the lips, the idea is communication, get ideas, getting ideas across. Now typically, the wilderness is not a place where you're going to find an abundant source of water. It's often Israel's complaint. You brought us out here to die. There's no water. We got no water. Here the devil comes in and he says, hey, I've got a river for you. I'll satisfy everything you need. He communicates it in the form of water in the wilderness. The introduction, and hear this, the introduction of false doctrines which appear to be healthy and appetizing and beneficial and useful and they get the mind all full. You say, I'm learning so much. But it's actually smooth talk and flattery meant to deceive the hearts of the naive and draw them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is where we ought to be. Christ. People come along and they'll give us a, a, a little bit off. Well, what about this? And we begin to chase that line of thought. And it may be good, it may be bad, but it gets us off. This is what He does. God has brought the church to Himself to be nourished by the grace of Christ through the Spirit of Christ who is the river of life, the only other river in the Revelation. And the serpent comes in and he says, I've got another river. A river of deception. This is always his method. Offer an alternative to God's plan. I've got something better. Christ says, I will build my church. The, Satan said, the devil says, oh, you're cool to stay home. You're, you're, you're a part of the universal church. You see, little, little tweaks here and there. Little substitutes. How is the church built up, strengthened, sanctified? The proclamation of the truth. How does the serpent throw a wrench in this plan? He introduces falsehood, false doctrine, draws men away. The teachings of the Nicolaitans, the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of Jezebel, something little, some little distortion that says, I can satisfy you. I've got everything God offers. I can give it to you this way. And it appears 
to nourish. But it does not and cannot do what God's Word does. It's presented as water, which would be desirable in a wilderness, but His, his motive is not to nourish us. He wants to sweep us away with a flood. His goal is to steal and kill and destroy. That which seems to be a suitable substitute is actually the means by which He attempts to sweep away the church. That's His attack. And it pours forth. Number four, protection. In verse 16, "...the earth came to the help of the woman..." And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the drag, that the dra- dragon had poured forth or had poured from his mouth. Now there are a couple places that we see this language in Scripture. Usually when we read this, our minds would immediately go to number 16 and Korah's rebellion. The most startling image, the only image, of the earth actually opening up and swallowing people. Those men opposed Moses and Aaron and God killed them and their families. But there's another reference that I think is more closely related to this, which is actually we would never think of at all. It doesn't even seem to fit. In the Song of Moses, after the children of Israel had been brought out of Egypt and they had crossed the Red Sea, in Exodus 15, 12, and 13, he says, You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God, you brought us out. They came after us. You swallowed them up. Why? Because you're bringing us to yourself. And Moses considered the drowning of Pharaoh's army as the earth, swallowing them up. The idea is is very simple. The providential care of God manifested in judgment upon those who would seek to do them harm. God will protect His church. He will not let this river of lies wash away His church. It can't happen. It won't. Verse or Point number five, pursuit. Verse 17, it, it ends this way because it leads into the next chapter. The dragon is not satisfied with his failed attempts and so he continues to, to pursue and to persecute the church. The dragon became furious with the woman. He's already been thrown down in great wrath. Now he's even more angry. His anger is amplified by failure after failure. And so he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Rest in contrast to Christ Himself. The offspring being the spiritual siblings of Christ. Now someone might object. How can the church be both the woman and her offspring. Or remember that the language of a woman is implying the ongoing lineage of a people, a progeny, a constant reproduction of souls. In other words, this, doesn't, this isn't new here. The woman has always been both the woman and her children. She consists of offspring and the production, the ongoing production of offspring. We might best understand it in the difference between the universal church and the local church. The universal church is an ideal truly understood only in the mind of God. The local church is the visible manifestation of that. The only way we know that there is a universal church is because there's a local church here. And because we can go to Malawi and there's a local church there. We can go to the Philippines and there's a local church there. That's the only way that, that, that we know that that is the truth. 
While the ideal, the universal church, is always secure, the manifestation of it in local visible churches is and will be subject to persecution. We are always, at one and the same time, kept and given over. So that the dragon continues his pursuit, continues to make war on the church. Notice how the saints of God are described. Those who keep the testimonies of God and hold, or keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is a Christian. He just described the saints, not the Jews. Christians. Christians obey God. They do what God says to do. Christians express their love for Christ by obeying Him. Now we've been in in our afternoon lectures talking about the law of God. Is the moral law of God yours? That's the question. Is it yours? Has that been written on a fleshy heart which is being conformed to the image of Christ? Is it yours? And I'm not asking, can you carry out some of its dictates out of obligation? You say, well, I don't tell lies because I don't like it when other people lie to me. I don't steal because I don't like it when other people steal from me. I'm not an adulterer because I wouldn't want anybody lusting or committing adultery with my wife, and so I don't do those things. That's not what I'm asking. Those are general moral precepts that any pagan can follow. I'm asking, is it yours? Do you love it? Is that the pattern to which you are seeking to be conformed actively? Asking, God, make me like you. That's what it means that the law is yours, that they keep the commandments of God. A Christian keeps the commandments of God. Not to earn our salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, and nothing that we do adds any any ounce of merit to what Christ has already accomplished in our standing with God. But a Christian does obey the commandments of God as a manifestation of their salvation. If you've got the Spirit of God, your moral standard is the law of God. Christians obey the commandments of God. They also hold to the testimony of Jesus. They're faithful. They stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Christians are faithful in holding up the torch of the gospel. And we've seen this in the Revelation over and over, that the specific function of the church in the present age is this. The church and all of its members, we hold up the truth. That's what a Christian does. If you're a Christian, you're holding up the truth. If you're not a Christian, you're not real concerned about the truth. But he describes believers here. So again, the question in closing is, did, did He just describe you, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? Are you a Christian reconciled to God by the death of your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you say, I am. You just described me. I'm a Christian, not by tradition, not by subscription to a club or a set of ideas, but because that relationship has been, has been birthed in me by the Spirit of God. I have been brought to God by His work, through His Son. You just described me. The number one, expect attacks. Expect these attacks. If you are aspiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. If you have determined that you will conduct yourself according to the Word of God alone, you will be persecuted. 
If you have an unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ and His Gospel, you will be persecuted. A furious and enraged devil is coming after you. And he's spent a long time perfecting the art of deception and substitution. Now, he's not going to come against the saints in ways that are obviously destructive. I told the kids last night, he's not going to show up as a red dragon and say, you believe that Jesus is God, Jesus is not God. He'll say, sure, yeah, Jesus was born a man and became God. And they... I got most of them. There were a couple of them that gave me a positive nod and, and some said, no, that's not right. He was, he, was, he was God before he was born. I said, you're right. That's the way this, the, the attacks of the evil one come. They're subtle. They're calculated to deceive. His method consists of offering an apparent viable alternative to what God has commanded, just like he did with Christ in the wilderness. You're hungry. I've got bread, Right? You want the kingdoms of the world? You're going to conquer the kingdoms? I've got them. I'll give them to you. Just worship me. He offers, but He wants to do it in a way other than what God has prescribed. His desire is to lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This can happen in many ways, even with being distracted by good things. I'm afraid that there are many good things that are being dangled before the eyes of the church at the present time that are keeping... The church, the people of God, busy, yes, but distracted. And so that while they remain busy, their eyes are being pulled away from Christ Himself. Many good things, even. So we have to guard our hearts, especially in the present time. People keep making jokes about the year. A lot of things, we're busy this year. As a nation, we're busy. The world is busy. We've got an election. We've got a a Supreme Court justice. We've got a disease or a, a, a cold floating around. These things are happening. You know, we're, we're just busy. And everybody, if I were not a Christian, and I watched evangelicals, and I watched even the Reformed believers from the outside, I would say, those people don't have anything to say except what Fox and CNN give them to talk about. They don't, they don't have anything to say. Because we get all of our talking points from everywhere else. Now, should we desire after a, a, a wise rulers who will lead us in godliness? Absolutely. Uh, should we be concerned about our physical health? Sure. Uh, should we be concerned about the lives of the unborn? Sure. Should we be concerned about protecting our nation and, and our history and things like that, protecting righteousness in the land? Sure. Are these things a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Now, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy. I'm afraid that we create the dichotomy because we prove we can't keep our eyes on Christ and all this other stuff. Now maybe it's just me. I know I can't do it. I can't do it. Everything that everybody's talking about, all of the news, everything that's just filling everybody's conversations, I can't do that and keep my eyes fixed on Christ. I don't have the ability. Some of you might have the ability. Some of you think you have the ability and you don't. There's no increase in growth in love for Christ, but you can tell me everything about, uh, I don't know the woman's name, the Supreme Court lady. Everything about her. Nothing about Christ. This is why it's so important when our men get together for an hour on Saturdays, let's just talk about Christ and see if we have the, the ability. Do you have the, the ability to, for 10 minutes to talk about the person of Christ? 
Because a lot of us can talk for 10 minutes about everything else under the sun. And if I pretend like I'm, I, I don't care, it's because I really don't care. The things that people are talking about and are concerned about, I have to say, I can't do it. I can't, inv- I can't, other men can, but I can't. We need to expect these attacks and not assume that every good thing, every good headline, every good thought that's coming out is something that we need to latch on to and then make it our cause. We've got one cause. Christ crucified for sinners, reigning as King. That's our cause. So keep that in your mind and guard your hearts. And then, and then lastly, very, very briefly, expect nourishment. If you're a Christian, expect to be nourished. God has a place prepared for His church. The place of protection, provision, nourishment. In this place, He will build His church to maturity through the proclamation of the gospel, not laws. I'm going to go back to that point. I don't, if, a member of the, if a member of this church, the, the most spiritual person in this church, or, or of any church, that we could pick, the, the holiest man we know, became president of the United States in November, that would not change this nation and the moral problems of this nation one lick, not one grain of sand in a bucket, not it. It won't happen because the problem is spiritual. The problem is in the souls of men. The only answer to that is the proclamation of the gospel. Now, if that man gets on TV and preaches the gospel, that may help. But we, we, we have to understand that there is one way that Christ is building His church. We don't have, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy. We make the dichotomy. We have to understand our limitations. Various trials that come upon the church are trials that are used for our nourishing. Christ is cleansing His bride. He will have a beautiful bride. And so take heart. No trial, no temptation is going to come upon the church except that which has been common to the church from the very beginning. And with that temptation, He will give the way of escape. To where? To the place He's prepared. What is it? It's Him. He's the place. We were talking this week, and I think that... Well, some have, some have made some... some suggestions on, on what this place looks like in the Gospels. The place is God. The place is where God brings us to Himself, gives us Himself, and He says, if you'll stay right here, this is preparation, this is safety, this is provision. You stay right here and I will bring you along. That's the place. If God allows these things to come upon us, it's because He's, he's, he's bringing us to Himself. Trials are meant to pry our fingers off of this world, force us to our knees in utter dependence upon God. If you don't have regular times where you just have to fall down and, and cry out, I don't think you're really paying attention to the news. We, we take these things as talking points and we're not falling down. There ought to be times when we can do none other but lay out because we realize I have nothing. We have nothing. All of our talking, all of our blogging, all of our posting, we don't have anything for this world except the gospel of Christ. And even in that, if He does not bless its proclamation, it's still words. He must come. We have to be dependent upon God. And He's made the place for that. This is is the time. Let's pray.